welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Classicist is Victor Davis Hanson, the Morton and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to use as the springboard for our conversation today a recent piece you had at National Review about what the future looks like for American foreign policy with the Biden administration on its way in. And, and let me just start here. We know more or less what the Biden foreign policy team will look like at this point, Secretary of Defense aside. And it is, I think it's fair to say, a very orthodox group by the standards of a Democratic administration. That, that is to say it is composed almost entirely of careerists, people with long track records in these kinds of roles, most of them simply being promoted one rank above where they served in the Obama administration. And this is being hailed in a lot of press circles as a sign that the, the grown-ups are back in charge. We've got steady hands at the wheel again. What's your reaction to the way this group is shaping up? Yeah, I think you're right. You got right on the money, Troy. It's sort of a Obama 2.0. And it's going to be very interesting to see what they do, because if you just prune away the rhetoric of unilateralism and Trump's bluster and snubbed allies and just look at what they're inheriting. They're inheriting a world that's angry at China and that uh, that the idea that we're not going to accept Chinese hegemony, uh, it's not fated that they're going to rule the world. That is now a consensus. They can build on that. Middle East, the same way. They can, they can say all they want about Iran, but the sanctions, COVID, oil prices, um, the exit from the Iran deal, the new detente with Israel in the, in the Arab world, it has isolated Iran. And so if they bring Iran back in and resuscitate that corpse, that's a disaster. But they've been given a wonderful opportunity. And the same with Europe. Europe has increased their NATO budget by $100 million. And we have now eight, I think, that are meeting the 2% instead of two, the 2% GDP requirement. So they've got a lot of things they could do if they were smart and Machiavellian. They would say the Trump years were a disaster and then do exactly what Trump did and take credit for it with nice, you know, therapeutic language and multilateralism. So that's what we're going that's what I was trying to say in the article. We'll see what if they're going to be smart or stupid. The other thing very quickly is that uh, I was kind of replying to an article by Corey Shockey and my other colleagues, uh, General Mattis and Joe Felter and uh, Admiral Ellis, and they tried to frame the Biden idea, defense in depth, multilateral versus unilateral, all of that stuff. And what I was trying to say is those are not value judgments. They're not intrinsically good or bad. And they were suggesting that I think they were, that Trump was unilateral and that's bad and multilateral is good. And I, as I said in the piece, the greatest multilateral alliance of the last hundred years was this Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. I mean, every European country was there, Eastern Europe, Finland, Spain, Italy, even Portugal sent a few troops. Japan was approving of it. And who was the greatest unilaterals of the war? Uh, the United Kingdom between June of 1940 and June of 1941. Same thing with words like preemption or preventive war. Israel was not doing any, but anything but surviving when it preemptively attacked Egypt before Egypt would have attacked it hours later in 1967. And so I think that's really important 
to remind people. And alliances, they can be very good. They can be very good. And they can be very bad. We have a great alliance in Afghanistan. What good did it do us? You know, 20 years later, we have everybody and his brother in Afghanistan on our side. Israel had no alliances. It went alone. And what, what good did all the Arab alliances, 15 Arab countries, all they did was squabble and say, you get shot first, not me. And so I think that was an opportunity missed to remember that across time and space, these words take on their value currency depending on the circumstances, but they're not intended to be absolute moral adjectives. It's inevitable in these situations with a transition that a new administration ends up defining itself, at least partially, by contrast to its predecessor. So you've got this point that you just made about multilateralism versus unilateralism. And one of the other things you're already hearing is that a Biden administration is going to reassert American leadership, that Donald Trump pulled back from our role on the world stage and had this sort of isolationist mindset where he just wanted to sort of leave the rest of the world to its own devices. What do you make of that diagnosis as compared to the actual Trump track record? Yeah, I think we're back to this. I just try to be empirical, and I, I look at the world as it is today, and I say to myself, when he came in, he asked what was the greatest threat, and Obama said that, wow, we didn't know, but North Korea's got nuclear-tipped weapons that are capable of hitting the West Coast, and they're they're shooting them everywhere, and they're not now. They're, whatever that we say, they're not doing that. And when he went in there, it was pretty clear that the Iran deal was acculturating people to the acceptance that Iran would be a nuclear power, not on Obama's watch, but on somebody else's. Nobody believes that anymore, not necessarily. And everybody had said the Palestinians are the key to Mideast peace. They've been saying that for 73 years. They're about as much refugees, as I said in the piece, as Volga Germans or East Prussians or the million Jews that were ethnically cleansed in the Middle East from, you know, from 47 all the way up through 74. And so there's this reality and then there's this rhetoric. And I was really upset when we turned to Russia because we forget that Reset was the Obama administration and our colleague Mike McFall, and their point was that supposedly George Bush had been rude, unilateral, and it offended Putin in Osatia. And therefore, they were going to push this Geneva jacuzzi button and say, you know what, we're back to good relations. And that magnanimity, because it was magnanimity, because Bush had done nothing wrong but properly adjusted to Russian aggression, gave Putin a green light. And subsequently, we lost eastern Ukraine, Crimea. They were in the Middle East for the first time in 45 years. Uh, they were violating their missile agreement. They were doing everything. And then research just suddenly went into, wow, we appeased him, and now we hate him because we accuse him of colluding with Donald J. Trump. So what did Trump do? The, the colluder, the empower, the appeaser Putin, he killed 200 Russians. Uh, we never did that in the Cold War. Uh, in Syria, he crashed world air, oil prices by flooding the market with fracking fuels. He sanctioned Russian oligarchs. He sold lethal weapons to Ukraine. Remember, the Obama administration wouldn't do it. He got impeached for it, <laughs> but he did it. And I could go on and on and on, but he got really tough on Putin. 
He jawboned about the 10 million natural gas deal. He he increased the U.S. defense budget by 150 billion, the NATO budget by 100. He did a lot of things. So that's the record. And then there's the rhetoric. And it gets kind of tiring that, you know, it sort of reminds me of high school when some somebody was the woman, the girlfriend that was beautiful and you had to take to the prom. And then the other one was a loser. You didn't want to take to the prom. And that's what you were told. And then suddenly you graduated from high school and the loser girl was absolutely Liz Taylor when you looked at her. And the one that you were supposed to take the prom, well, I won't go into it. But that's that kind of constructed uh, group think. And that's what Biden is doing with these people, that he's reappointing, that these retreads falling in the same thing. And it's just a question now, Troy, if there's anybody with any guts or insight, political cunning, who says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to ram this Trump foreign policy down everybody's throats, and we're going to say it's ours. And then we're going to spice it up with some nice little, you know, multilateral rhetoric. But that would require them to be really hard on the left because they want to do some crazy things. But to that point, Victor, it's, it's always seemed to me that foreign policy is a complicated area when it comes to presidential legacies because presidents usually get remembered for issues where there's no unringing the bell. So you pass a big piece of legislation that's never going to be repealed or you win a war. But on foreign affairs short of war, that can be a bit harder to do because the day after you're gone, the new guy can upend the relationship with whichever countries he wants to. What strikes you as the foreign policy accomplishments of the Trump administration that you look at and think, doesn't matter what the Biden people want to do, that chapter is closed. Even they're not going to go back to the status quo ante. The first thing I think is they're not going to repeal the new trade agreement with Canada and Mexico. They can talk all they want, but it's a superior agreement to NAFTA. It may have been forced on Mexico and Canada, but and they may resent the conditions under which it was inaugurated, but we won't repeal that. And I think we're not going to go back into a missile treaty with Russia. And they can talk all they want about the Iran deal, but I don't think they're going to want to take a physically exhausted, bankrupt uh, country and pump it up again. I just I don't think they're going to do that because the, their Arabs allies would just walk out in mass of all relations with us. It would be a crazy thing to do. I don't think they're going to uh, go back to six-party agreement, strategic engagement with North Korea. They're going to tell them what Trump did. If you, you want to go shoot the missiles, you go ahead and do it. But we can't guarantee that your enemies in the region won't go nuclear or we don't we can't guarantee that we might send some missiles over your country and see how you like it. So I don't think they're going to, I think they're going to build on that. Where I'm worried is I think in the Middle East, when you have the likes of John Kerry floating around and Blinken and all these people is that um, they're going to resurrect the Palestinians, give them 700 million and say they're central to the peace. And that'll really, uh, that's the worst thing you could do to your Arab allies because they put their necks out with their public and they were willing to take risks to get real results in the Middle East and they'll just chop it off if they do that. And they're capable, I think, of doing that. So that's what I'm most worried because that is a that is a road to oblivion. It'll never work. I have heard Joe Biden a few times recently in the press 
compared to George H.W. Bush in terms of the amount of experience he's bringing to the presidency. So he's a U.S. senator for over 35 years, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee during some of that time, served as vice president, obviously, for eight years. And yet, there's that quote that we mentioned on a past episode, Bob Gates saying that he thought Biden had been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy issue of his lifetime, which raises a, a bigger conceptual question that goes even beyond Joe Biden. How much value should we place on experience qua experience when we're evaluating a presidential contender? Because if we take Bob Gates at his word, Joe Biden has been sitting in all the right meetings for 45 years and not getting much out of it. So how should we think about that? I don't think very much at all. It's like saying Solieri had a more impressive you know, resume than Mozart or something. Or uh, it's like saying... Oswald Spengler was just a high school teacher, so that you know the decline of the West was nothing. Or in my own field of classics, when I look at, I ask myself a lot, what were the great achievements of the last 150 years? Well, they were Heinrich Schliemann, a discredited banker who founded Troy and Mycenae. They were Michael Ventris that unlocked the secrets of the Linear B script, who was an architect. And worked in you know cyber, shouldn't say cyber, but in cryptography, in world in World War II, and died very tragically young. And it was kind of a renegade nut named Milman Perry who said that the Iliad and the Odyssey were composed orally. And he went all the way in very strange fashion up to Serbia to learn Serbo-Croatian and find living bards. And then I look at all the great philologists. And historians that were Regis professors at Oxford and Cambridge, chairman of the department at Harvard, Berkeley, Stanford, and they didn't do anything like that. So I think the history of really great insight is opposing groupthink. doesn't mean you're going to be a renegade. And I understand that were people in the Trump, whether you talk about Omarosa, Omarosa or Scaramucci, you get some nuts in there. But there were people who were elevated for a while. I mean, Mike Pompeo was a superb secretary of state. And he had his advisor on China was it came to be Miles Yu, who was an outsider, but the guy was absolutely brilliant. He was a survivor of Tiananmen Square. So I think that's far more important that you, you evaluate and adjudicate people on their ideas and the caliber rather than you read their resumes. And Joe Biden, I mean, if you're going to if we're going to get into it, he wasn't just wrong on everything. He was a plagiarist. He did some things that were dishonest in law school. He was a demagogue about Robert Bork. He tried to destroy the character of uh, Justice Thomas. He did a lot of things that I think were reprehensible. And at one point, he was demagoguing, you know, race as he was supposedly the tough white Democrat that would stop the predators, as he called them. And then the next thing he knew, he was a progressive. So I, I've never been impressed with his Senate record or anything about him, to tell you the truth. And that was when he was supposedly in his prime. And I'm speaking, you know, right now at 67, and I forget things all the time. And I think I can do a little bit more. I could be, uh, have a better memory at 67 than Joe Biden does at 78. And the idea that I would be the president at 78, if frightens me because of, I feel cognitive decline all the time, but I don't think he's up to it. And the first, as you notice, these first, well, I don't, I don't want to call them press conferences because he, he will not meet with the press. You know that he can't meet with the press, but what little inklings we've had of them are embarrassing. Come on, man, wear a mask. Come on, man. 
Social distance. Come on. That, that's about it. And it's off topic. It's embarrassing. It's not for Kamala Harris. She's she's salivating over this. <laughs> Final question that I'll put to you. In terms of what they're facing, walking into the Oval Office, who inherits the more dangerous world? Donald Trump in January of 2017 or Joe Biden in January of 2021? Well, there's no doubt that it was Donald Trump. As I said, he inherited a China where he was a voice in the wilderness saying, you know what, they may have a 1.4 billion, but they're not going to inherit world hegemony. And they said, are you crazy? How would you stop? And he said, tariffs. Oh, we don't wor- use the tariff word. And I can, I'll go over and send Jared and, you know, send Pompeo over to the Middle East and we'll clean up that mess. And that was ISIS. We forgot that ISIS was beheading people on videos and they don't exist. He bombed what he said he was going to do. And there were caravans coming across the southern border, and they they increased mysteriously when Trump took office. And all of a sudden, where did they go? They disappeared. Same thing with Russia. Russia doesn't touch us in Syria anymore. And so that's the world he inherited. And that's the, and the world that he passed off to Biden is much, sta- much more stable. And all Biden has to do is make his Biden argument. It's pretty unimaginative. It's boilerplate. But I'm a multilateralist. I've worked with allies my entire life. I've met with Putin. I'm on a first main basis with all the Europeans. Okay, then go over there and just veneer or gild this new approach. The problem, Troy, is that what happens when he goes over there and Germany says, you know, Joe, we love you. I've known you for years, Merkel says to him, but you know, we're not going to ever pay the 2% NATO contribution. We got a gas deal with Putin. And you know what? The other countries don't have to either. What is what is Biden going to do? But Angela, we're multilateralists. And when he goes over to China, what if Xi says, you know what? This is the way it's going to be. We're going to steal your property. We're going to violate copyrights, and you're not going to have any more tariffs. What's he going to do? I don't think he's going to do anything. And that's what's that's what happens when you have this therapeutic language, and it's not backed up. And Trump's fault was there were times that he carried a, a little stick and talked tough, but most of the times he talked loudly and he carried a club. And so that's much better than talking loudly and carrying a twig. You've been listening to the Classicist Podcast with Victor Davis Hanson. Remember, you can read all of Victor's work at victorhanson.com, and he's on Twitter at VDHanson. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. 